This Bible study is entitled The Vision of Christ. Part of the Revelation of Jesus series. A study of Revelation chapter 1. Father, we want to thank you that in your goodness you have provided this book, the Bible, for our benefit for our spiritual development, so that we can shine as it were like stars in the morning, in the sky. Help us, O oh God, as we look into this tremendous picture of Christ, to grasp something of his majesty and glory that will lighten our hearts and challenge us to greater things. Amen. Yes, we're looking at 9 to 20. Um, some of you will remember that we commented that it's a revelation of Jesus uh, as well as a revelation by Jesus. And we'd be going to uh, look tonight at a picture of Christ which is stupendous. Uh, I will quote this probably more than once, but I came across a quotation by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the famous preachers from the 1800s. And he says this, considering this passage, put off the, thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place thou standest is holy ground. If God manifest in a bush, command solemnity. What shall we say of the God manifest in Christ? Truly here we see no burning bush, but burning feet, burning eyes, and burning countenance. I challenge you to uh, study this passage in all its awesome detail and then walk away and be flippant about Christ. It is not possible. We come down, and just as by way of introduction, uh, we look at John, first of all. Where was he? Well, we know he was on Patmos, and he was there for a purpose. Now, I want to say something here. Uh, again, I'm going to quote another author, and it's vital that you grasp what the man is saying. Uh, this is a man called G.R. Crow. He wrote a book on Revelation called The Lamb and the Book, and he makes this tremendous comment. To be effective in any teaching, it is first necessary to note not by report only, but by experience. God pours his truth through the heart and lives and not merely through the minds of his servants. In other words, it's a bit like uh, Ezra, who set his heart to know the word of God set his heart to practice the word of God, and then set his heart to teach it. We know it, we get to know it, and practice it, then we can teach it. And it's a little difficult for us to understand John uh, in his persecution, because certainly in our country, we have had little in the way of persecution for a number of years. And he's... Notice how he addresses himself, not as the great apostle, 
not a disciple of, of Jesus, but simply a brother. And what a tremendous picture, isn't it, of the brotherhood of every Christian. We're all brothers in Christ. Family members. It's a great thing to travel abroad, you know, and go into different countries. And even if you can't spell, speak the language, there's that love bond that helps you to overcome and enjoy fellowship. And he talks about them as fellow partakers in the tribulation. Uh, I did a little research and uh, for, on John's banishment, and it would be preceded by scourging as Christ's was, marked by perpetual fetters, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleeping on bare ground, a dark prison, working under the lash of the whip and of the military overseer. It wasn't a pleasant kind of situation to be in. As I say, a lot of us, especially in our country here, uh, we've been very fortunate in recent years. Any persecution has been very, mainly verbal and not so physical. But Jesus, remind, uh, John reminds us in his gospel, Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulation. It is something that we, we should expect to face. Because if they hate the master, they'll hate the servant. He was there for a purpose. He was there for uh, his testimony because he wouldn't back down from his faith in Christ, by which this time it was in the early 90s AD, he would be an elderly man. Yeah, he might even have been older than me, and that's saying something. And there he was on this island, Patmos, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What a tremendous man. And he was given a task there. He had to write what he was going to learn. And uh, he was going to learn a lot. Now, as we come to verse 10, I was in the Spirit. Now, a lot of people, uh, and I hope you don't take offense at me here, a lot of people think that it being in the Spirit is to be active in tongues. It is not the case. I'm not decrying and saying there is no gift of tongues. Don't misunderstand me. But singing in the Spirit is not necessarily singing in tongues. Being in the Spirit is not necessarily having a tongues experience. I think I would like to take just a second or two just to explain something about the Holy Spirit. Now, all through the New Testament, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. And we need to be careful because however we look at the Spirit of God, we must treat him as holy, not as a convenience. Now, there's a lot of play about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's mentioned seven times in the New Testament. Uh, the first five were what we call prophetic. 
looking forward to the event. The sixth one is the event of Pentecost. The seventh one is an experience that uh, Peter had in the uh, centurion's home. He, it was a reminder of how it was in the beginning. We must always, when we think of the Spirit of God, look back on things like that and get the whole picture. He's another comforter. And that Greek word there is another that's identical to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are one in purpose. It's limited by the promise that it would be not many days. But there are four commands about the Holy Spirit, which I don't have time to go into tonight. I'll do that on another occasion for your benefit. But it's important that we move on to look at what I called the portrait of Christ and the position of Christ, the presence of Christ, and the proclamation of Christ, uh, all in this section. There is so much that we need to look at. Uh, now, when did it take place? It was on the Lord's Day. Now, I want to explain something to you that's not always evident uh, to some people, and it's this. The Lord's Day is not the Day of the Lord. It is, the Lord's Day is a term that was used uh, specifically uh, about the Sunday. It was called the Lord's Day. Uh, it's, we've, it's applied to that. Whereas the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, the Lord's day is a time when the people of God get together in worship. Uh, the first day of the week, let me put it to you this way, is a memorial day for us to remember specifically the victory of Christ over death and the power of hell. That's why it took place on the Lord's Day, because he's going to talk right throughout this uh, revelation to the end of the book about that very victory. It speaks of resurrection. It speaks of deliverance. And it speaks of a new creation. And that's all Revelation, the book of Revelation. It's absolutely spot on for the theme. Ezekiel 3.12 is very similar. Exodus 19, you get something similar too. Trumpets are very significant in Revelation. There are seven. And they are very significant. And we'll deal with them as we come to them. But you remember, why trumpets? Well, the Roman army did everything by trumpets. It got you up in the morning, it called you for breakfast, it called you to uh, a different route, would call you to uh, training, or if it was uh, being attacked, it would be a different uh, sound. It was used for the commands of the army, and we are part of the army of God. 
The voice of God here, it sounds with a commanding and unmistakable clarity. It is a trumpet God as we consider this wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the message, well, it's, we'll deal with that step by step. But who was it addressed to? The seven churches. <laughs> the seven churches, well, why seven churches? Why these seven? Well, it's very simple. Uh, we'll look at them for a second or two. Uh, seven, of course, is a number of completeness. Uh, and so what we have is a, here is a picture of the complete church, the seven churches in Asia. Now, we're going to do some word studies here. Uh, first, Asia means muddy, slimy. So you've got a picture of seven churches in the world, the muddy. You remember that beautiful text, he lifts us out of the miry clay and he sets our feet upon a rock. Well, that's what the church is supposed to be in the midst of the world, a rock in which people can come and find the rock, which is Christ. All of the, these things are beautifully symbolic. Wait, and it's important for us to grasp these things. Isn't it true that also the church is supposed to be a place where, even in an ungodly, evil world, there's a place of holiness? Yes. Like oh. Yes, it is true. That is true. That is supposed to be the nature of the church. We are called saints. That's every Christian is a saint. Are they? I remember talking about this some number of years ago on sainthood. And I said, the Catholic Church, they have to be dead. There has to be people who uh, ascertain that that particular uh, saint has committed, a person, I should say, has committed a miracles in the, uh, uh, of healing, protection, so forth, before they can ever be considered to be a saint. But when God speaks, he says, he makes us all saints. We are holy ones in Christ. That should be the reflection of the church, uh, that we are holy. And that's the idea behind the light. The light is the, spirit, is the a picture of the Spirit of God, and that's what we do. We shine. But let's look through these. The word Ephesus means desirable. And I know a lot of people think the church of Ephesus is the, the best one. I, I once took a, a series on the seven churches and started with this question. What kind of church would you like to be in? Well, Ephesus, of course, desirable. Smyrna is, uh, uh, has, is the similar to myrrh, which speaks of suffering and sorrowing. Pergamos, height. It was built on a hill and it had a clear view. But it, it, was, it gives this idea of firmness and unity. Thyatira, 
sacrifice of labor. Sardis, Prince of Joy. And if you know your letters, we'll be dealing with them in detail after, uh, after a while. It would mean there was only a remnant in Sardis. Philadelphia, of course, everybody knows love of a brother. Laodicea, just people or religious people. Uh, a man called uh, Catford, he wrote this. The spiritual condition of the seven ancient churches present practically every problem and difficulty which have confronted the church throughout her history. Now, I will expand on this again as later, but let me just say this. Most people take those seven churches and use them as expressions of church history. I don't. I don't deny there's a possibility uh, that, that that might be true, but I think, look at them in this way. Somewhere in whatever nation you're in, there will be churches who will have the qualities and failures of the churches mentioned here. I think they are practical for every age and every generation. And most especially for this generation, as we are building up into the last days, I think they are intensely practical and we need to learn from them. So that's the seven churches in Asia in the muddy worldly situation. Well, as I say, we'll look at them. But let's go on and let's have a little look at the picture of Christ because that's what we are dwelling on. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We ought to be Christ-centered. And so what we need to do is learn who he is, what he's like, and seek to copy him, because he said he is a, set an example for us. And then he was up in the, uh, was John in Patmos. Uh, he is a trumpet, and he's given a task to do, and that was to write to the churches. All that he was going to see and hear and learn. So if the Lord is going to such great lengths, it must be important for us. I still puzzle over an elder in a church who admitted he'd never read the book of Revelation since he was a youth. It is a book, I think, that is vital for us today. So, when he turned to look on, to see the voice that was speaking, what did he see? Uh, <laughs> he turned and he saw seven golden candlesticks. Seven churches, seven lampstands, if, you, if we would have used that at times. Lampstands, candlesticks, however you see them, it is true. And it stands in contrast uh, to the seven branches that were on the candle 
Labra that was in the tabernacle. It was seven branches, three on either side, one down the center. Here, they stand individually. It's a, and the, it's a picture that's taken from Zechariah chapter 4. Seven lights. What he is trying to emphasize, I think, when he looks at this, is that there are seven individual churches. Now, I wasn't brought up to go to church, but when I became a Christian, I was, uh, was contacted by people who belonged to the Brethren movement. And uh, they would claim every Brethren assembly was autonomous, self-governing. And I think this is part of the thing that comes out of these seven lampstands. They were separate. They were autonomous, apart from one thing. In the midst was the Saviour. We'll look at that in a minute or two. And remember this. Two or th where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's in the midst. That's the same picture. Christ centred in the midst. So what did he see? He saw these candlesticks and in the middle of the candlesticks the son of man that's a title that's used the times of christ and uh, you need to go back to the first mention i think it was daniel 7 13 and so what he has turned seven golden cups, seven pictures of seven churches and christ in the midst, the Soma, clothed in a robe. Uh, now, the people that usually were clothed in the robe in the Old Testament were priests as a rule. Uh, sometimes a king, and very occasionally a prophet. But we know that our Lord Jesus Christ was, is prophet, priest, and king. The prophet brings a word from God to man. The priest brings a man to God. And the king is God's ruler. So what we see in the garments is authority, spiritual and real. Our Savior has all authority. And he passes it on to the church, Matthew 28. Never forget that. The church is not helpless. It has all the power and authority of God behind it. There, there are so many uh, little pictures here that are important. I won't be able to take all of them in depth because we don't have the time. But as we said it was a robe of a priest. It is also sometimes a, a judge and royalty. And this is what Jesus is here. is King of kings, Lord of lords. He's in the midst of his churches. And he is going to exercise the, that authority in dealing with the churches. I'll pause here.
and I will repeat this next phrase. Okay? He is in the churches in the midst to judge and exercise authority. Too many churches are ruled by people and not by Christ. You can take me up on that afterwards. It's a good something worth giving consideration to. That robe is tied about his chest. And it's strange because normally you tie a belt around the waist, but this is around the chest and it's golden. Uh, and I always remember John 1 John 4, God is love. He is going to judge the church, each individual church, but it's balanced with love. He doesn't pick fault. He judges problems in love. And this is something that we can rest on because it's true not only of the ch local churches or the church universal, it is true of us as individuals. He sometimes judges us, but it's always with love and his judgments are always tinged with mercy and are always to bring repentance and restoration for where we have failed as individuals, as a church. The head and hair. Now, I'm going to turn you around to Daniel chapter 7. I'll start reading from verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Ancient of Days, of course, is a, uh, a reference to our great God, his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. The hoary head is a sign of wisdom, and in Christ, in God's case, of course, it's a symbol of purity. A, a little further down, I kept looking in, into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That white hair. The similarity, that connection with the Father is startling. Please always remember, if you use the name of Christ as a swear word on any occasion, you blaspheme God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because they are one in character, perfect in unity. Why would a Christian do that? Doesn't sound like something a Christian would do. Sorry? Why would a Christian do that? That doesn't sound like something Christians do. It's not. Well, 
if you treat lightly the things of God, I think you're, you're in trouble on that point. But we'll take that up later with you, if you don't mind. Otherwise, we'll never get this through this lot. Sorry, the was, eyes. That was, Sorry? That, was, uh, that was just a very weird comment for you to make. Sorry, you'll have to repeat that. It's not coming through clear. Sorry, that was a very weird comment you made there. That's why I said that. Sorry. Ah, okay. The eyes, which which would speak of omniscience, uh, would, again, Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, I know your thoughts. He reads our hearts. He knows us more thoroughly. A feet would speak of blazing purity. And the voice you recommend you read Ezekiel chapter 1, 24 and 43, 2. These things are there to remind us that of all the things that Christ is. He is magnificent and glorious. And where is Christ? At the right hand of God, the place of honor. The place of authority, place of strength, and the place of provision. And he should be held in all honor. He has all authority. He gives us our strength, and he provides for us physically, spiritually. And from his mouth, a sword. And again, these are all references from the Old Testament. Time is moving on very quickly. Uh, one of the things that we need always to consider is this, that all things are in his hands. God has put them there. He controls everything, even uh, death. He has conquered it and he has the keys. Oh, I'm still reading in Daniel here. Uh, he has the keys of death. Let me get back to Revelation chapter 1 again. Sorry, I turned over, accidentally turned over all the pages to, uh, to read from you and forgot to take them back. Uh, in his right hand, let, let me deal with this. In his right hand, he holds the seven uh, stars. And the seven stars are the seven angels. I will deal more in depth with that as we come to do the churches. But the seven stars are the seven angels. Now, it's very difficult for us to understand this, but please bear with me for a minute here, if I might. The word that is translated stars is angelos, from which we get angels from which means a messenger a messenger in every church local church god will have somebody who has his uh, ear attuned to the voice of god it may be the pastor it may be the little old lady sits in the back of the church and wouldn't say much in public anyway but somewhere there would be a person, and that person would be classed as the angel. 
the one who could hear God's message and pass it on. In this sense, John is. He's hearing everything that God is saying to him and Christ is saying to him, and he is going to pass that on to us. Now, they are in the right hand of God, of Christ. And so they too are people of honor. We might not treat them with honor, but Christ does. They will have authority. We might not recognize it, but God does. They will be people of spiritual strength. And I'm thinking of one old lady who was very influ influential in my young Christian days, a quiet lady. She would very gentle dealing with people, but when she spoke to you about things, you felt that authority. And the person who would be providing that very much needed strength and character to enable us to grow and develop in our Christian life. Now, I've tried to be very brief on these things. And I've tried to get you to look and to see something absolutely beyond our natural understanding. Now, I want to pause and then I will open up for comment and questions. What was the reaction of John when he saw this? Now, remember John, he is described as the disciple Jesus loved. It's recorded of him that he rested on the bosom of Christ. And yet when he saw that risen Christ in all his glory, he fell at his feet as though dead. I stress this very much because there was, uh, uh, in an open worship situation, a young man in, in his boldness stood up and he said, imagine if Christ was to stand in our midst, what would you say to him? My first thought was, if Christ actually uh, was physically in his resurrected body that we've been looking at, appeared in the midst of any church, the reaction would be not what would we ask him or say to him, we would fall at his feet as though dead. Because that picture is such a picture of authority, power, beauty, majesty, and glory that it defies almost description. And if that was to raise its head, if that was to come into our presence, we will fall at his feet as though dead. And yet in so many churches, we come in very casually into his presence. I knew of one church that had a coffee uh, machine going in outside and people in a morning service would go out, get themselves a cup of coffee, come in, drink their cup of coffee, fancy another one, they would get up and go out and they would come in. Is that respecting this? Do you think that would honor Christ? 
I maybe it's I'm just too old fashioned. But when I come into a morning service, I want to sit down and I want to bow my head. And maybe it's even to have a, a time of prayer and confession that I might be right as I come into his presence. I'm in the presence, not the physical perhaps, but he's in the midst. This very Jesus we are talking about, when we gather together as a local church, he's there. I'm going to have to go somewhere, so sorry I have to leave. Sorry about that. That's okay. Sorry that you kind of stayed, because with that thought, I'm just opening up for questions and comments so that you have time to say, say things. You might not agree with everything. That's okay. I won't fall out with you. We learn as young people to learn to agree to disagree. But look again. When you we finish sometime in this next 24 hours, look again at the magnificence of that person. And how should we treat him when we come together? It's sobering, isn't it, at times? Uh, remember, he's in the midst at all times. Uh, I sometimes have a little smile, and I make the same mistake myself. We say, praying, Lord, we come into thy presence. We live in that presence. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. That... Jesus, with the burning eyes that sees all, the burning feet that judges all, is our Saviour, our Lord. And yes, in a sense, it is true, he is our friend. We should not treat him casually or lightly. That was Gordon Stoves on behalf of Gospel Outreach International. We hope you have enjoyed this Bible study, and if you'd like to join us for other online Bible studies, then you can find more details at goi.org.uk. You are welcome to share this Bible study with others, but please don't modify it without express permission.